A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 205 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. But hey, enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the Stop. champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like the bonds that pull families together, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, hey, once again here trying to keep the cats from killing each other. You are the cat's meow, is that it? I'm about to be the cat's butt kicker here in a second. I can hear him in the background and such, so, you know. You, you recently got a new kitten, right? Yes, Kasima, named after the uh, uh, one of the clones on Orphan Black. Um, thankfully, there aren't any clones of this one, given the fact that one is quite enough. <laughs> nice. See, we just got two uh, puppies ourselves, some Dachshund uh, Chihuahua, Chihuini mix. Uh, and we uh, got two sisters, little tiny dogs, and their names are Sansa and Arya Bark. Yeah, that's right. They are the uh, nice. puppies with no... <laughs> yeah, so we've been uh, having a lot of puppy action here. Uh, in fact, I had to to do this recording. I had to run my daughter and the dogs over to my mom's house because the dogs like to yip and yap, and Jay likes to be in here and hang out. And now that she's doing the uh, kindergarten or the preschool, you know, I, I don't take advantage of that day as often as I thought. When I lined this day up with you, Nate, I was totally thinking she had school today. I was like, oh, she's uh, she's with me on Fridays. Uh, abort, abort, re- redo plan. So yeah, here we are now. <laughs> All, all's good again. We're uh, all fine here. And the little girl is hanging with his dogs. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we discuss Volume 8 of Star Wars Legacy, Tatooine, by John Ostrander. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. So once again, we're back to Legacy, and we're sort of finally getting a sense of where the series is going now that Vector has taken place. Vector was sort of one of those high points of the series in terms of dramatic tension and moving us on to a change in the status quo. And in the last volume, there's a significant amount of that volume that was focused on other parts of the galaxy. What was going on on Mon Calamari slash Dak, what was going on with Gar Stasi, and just a little bit dealing with what was happening with the Minot crew, Cade Skywalker and his companions. This one flips that on its head, and the bulk of it, four of these issues, the Tatooine story arc is going to be focused on Cade Jiraiya and Delia, and what they're doing in terms of effects on the galaxy and other characters, but them specifically. And then we have an issue kind of tossed into the end, Rogue's End, which was the next one in the series, but one that is very much disconnected, that sort of picks up a character we met in Noob, and that we saw again in Indomitable, going from being a stormtrooper in the first story, a member of Rogue Squadron in the next story, then showing up here where we find out more about his background and we see him transition from Rogue Squadron to another stage in basically becoming one of the great loose ends of Legends that we will probably never get a satisfactory conclusion for. So it's it's a much more on-point trade paperback worth, I think, this time around. And it makes for a decent story. It's, last time it sort of felt like it was all about the, the, the aftershocks, all about the fallout from Vector, whereas in this case it's sort of like, okay... They're dealing with that fallout. Cade's going to have to make some important decisions, and we've got some characters who need to meet finally. Uh, But it's not all about, you know, wow, what are we going to do now? It's sort of they figured out what they're going to do now. It's just that it's not necessarily the right path, so they're going to need to refine what they're doing. It doesn't feel like the characters are as lost as they were last time, which is good because when these characters are directionless, they tend to sort of go in circles. 
And in this case, it feels like there's at least sort of a through line of, we don't know where the characters are going, but they are going somewhere. No, that is a real good point. You know, Katie decided to be a pirate again. And yeah, that is not the right path. I think that's illustrated the most for me when I was reading this was how often when it came to stun or Kate goes to kill, like he's still very in the thrall of the dark side, whether he wants to admit it or not. Uh, and we eventually, we start to see that kind of, you know, come more to the, the forefront of the story as this uh, progresses. Uh, and, and we'll get to the other part of this towards the uh, spoiler part, but you know how I feel about rogues and guys, you know how I feel about Hondo Carr. That guy's pretty dang awesome. And I just don't feel like he got justice having his story just thrown in the back of this. Like, you know, trade paperbacks is always something that I, I love and hate at the same time because of these type of things. You know, when, when they break stories apart or they drop an issue from one or they put one in in a different place and stuff, it's always been confusing to me why they choose to make the decisions they choose. Whereas like this one, Tatooine would make a great Four issue arc. I like those four issues would have made a great little arc. You could have took all the Hondo Car stuff, all four of those issues, because you know Nate mentioned that it's three, but really Indomitable is part one and part two. So there's four of that too. They could have made that its own arc. I, I really felt like that could have seen its own story and the character could have got more. Because by this point, you have probably forgotten who this guy is, and you had to go back in your comics and pull out those other ones or find the trades and find where that issue was in each of those to get that story. I don't feel like that worked well and i feel like in this trade it just served as a distraction it kind of just took away whereas Cade's story was doing a really good thing and i like how you put it nate when they don't have a a frame you know the point of reference to be looking at you know that light at the end of the tunnel they are just spinning in circles Cade's doing all the things he's done before and it's not helping his relationships at all like it, like he's barely holding on and he's got that devil may care attitude that isn't helping at all either see from the standpoint of of it being sort of an afterthought of being, I mean, it's in here because it's the next one chronologically, it's the next one in terms of the issue numbers, and there really wasn't a way to sort of put that separate. I would argue that maybe collecting them together might have made sense, but I don't think that that would have made sense, sense for someone who was reading these Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, Volume 4, because it would have put the stories far out of chronological context. I do agree it's been a while since we've seen Hondo, so some people may, may need to be reminded, but in a sense, that's kind of what the EU slash Legends continuity did a lot. You know, here's a story published years later that has this character who was in that story years ago and hasn't been seen since, but hey, let's do something with them. I mean, hell, that's what my equals and opposites was. Really, when I wrote for Tales, it was an attempt to bring Kyle Katarn and Jan Ors back into the limelight as they were heading on to eventually take more part, I didn't know, uh, in Legacy of the Force and Fate of the Jedi and such, whereas they were kind of just languishing out there since the games and, and graphic novels based on them. Uh, I feel like this needs to be done in, to some extent in the chronological order because we you can't have the mission of the Indomitable outside of its chronological placement or it screws up other things that are happening, like the retaliation against Dak. In this case, it's the mission that Rogue Squadron is on and the situation that they're in that leads to this. Maybe they could have put this issue earlier. It's not as chronologically dependent as the other ones, it seems. But I don't know how you necessarily do one arc for this. I think there should have been an arc building off of Rogue's End. That should not have been a single issue. That should have been, like, four. <laughs> Going so from there forward to give us answers. But I don't know how you separate it from its chronological context and present it out of order. Uh, it feels weird having it in a trade paperback with this other story, but I just I don't know where else they should have put it. Well, that's a good point. I mean, so what if what if they told the first three issues of the Hondo arc as flashback, like like leave 41 where it's at and then you move those other ones and make them, you know, basically make them 41 through 43 and make 41 now 44 kind of scenario. And you tell noobs and you tell Indomitable in a flashback point of view, you could have still took the Indomitable story from the Imperial side, had that just remove the Hondo stuff. But I, then now we're really cutting the stuff up. So it's a tough Tough well, kind of it, so you'd make it almost like, in a sense, Hondo could be sort of like the Thane or Sienna for Legacy. In here's these big events that were happening, and we learn later in his own story that he was there for all of these participating. We just didn't necessarily see him on panel. Yeah, now, I, yeah. Work. I think that would work, but at the same time, that, to me, a lot of the fun of seeing him in Rogue's End was the payoff of, wow, here's this character we've seen a few times finally coming into his own. 
wow, we finally get a story specifically about him as opposed to just him being part of Rogue Squadron in a bigger story. So you get the payoff of getting it all together versus the payoff of the anticipation of eventually seeing him in his own story, which, of course, all whichever way they would have done it, unless we get an end to the story, still is going to wind up leaving that lingering feeling of wanting more because the answers just are not here. And I will say on top of that, we have had some artists going back and forth uh, on these issues where we don't have the main characters as the primary characters of the story. And sometimes the art really particularly fits what we're seeing in the story. And sometimes it feels kind of off. I think the art very, very well complemented Rogue's End, even though it wasn't Jan Dersima doing it. So for something that was that good of a story and that strong of an issue, it would have been nice to see more. But alas, not only did we not get more in Legacy, I don't think it's, if I don't remember correctly, I don't think it was even mentioned in Legacy War, and I can't remember it being mentioned anywhere in Legacy Volume 2 either what happened, even if as a side note. So we just completely get the ball dropped. Yeah, I kept thinking when we got War and Legacy Volume 2 that this was the opportunity. That wow factor that you mentioned of of Hondo, that was what really hooked me. At this point, when when 41 ended, I was like, I was dying to know where he was going with that. I I mean, that whole Mandalorian arc really, really intrigued the hell out of me. So that kind of just dropping off and never coming back, especially in Legacy Volume 2. Like, I really felt that was a huge dropped ball. Like, you know, they they brought in new characters and stuff, but it had really nothing to do with what was set up in Legacy already, and it had a promise like, oh, well, we're going to tell you about what's going on in Hapes, but they really didn't tell us that much either. It was like, man, what the hell are you guys doing? They, they built up so well with Legacy 1, and even, like, stuff with Rogue's End, where it picked up off of stuff that was there. Like, they did such a good job and they had so much promise from the first legacy series that when they got to legacy two, it just, just didn't work. And and these were the type of stories that I was looking forward to in that regard. Uh, I did like with Tatooine, how it brings back uh, Cade's mom into the fold. We learn more about Gunner Yage and the relationship between her and Cade and Cade's mom. And for me, uh, you know, Morgan Cord's a character that even though I've read this series about three or four times now, I still kind of wonder if there was more to her arc that also was left behind because I don't quite understand her motives. Like, like eventually in this, in this arc, especially they make it kind of clear that her motives eventually became, she was looking out for herself. But before that, before that moment, I don't know what the hell was driving her because she's an Imperial. She's in love with the Jedi. She's having a son with the Jedi. And yet she's still doing her own thing. And yet she knows about the Sith setting up the Jedi, but doesn't say anything. And I don't understand how keeping that lie helped her at all. I mean, heck, I still don't even know who was informing Emperor Fell in the last arc. I mean, I was thinking maybe they would inform us with that with this, with the Black Sun agent. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Or if it was, I didn't pick up on that information. Uh, So there was a lot of mystery in this that they added to it and gave some answers, but they still left the overall mystery there. I still really don't know what's driving Morgan Cord. She's a a Sphero product. It's somebody's phone. (laughs) Though, wouldn't that make her Morgan Cordless? Okay, okay, I'll stop. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go. On another adventure, Beyond the Films. All right, so we're going to take these summaries sort of in two parts, Tatooine first, Rogue's End second, and rather than going issue by issue here, this one kind of makes more sense to do it as far as the different storylines going throughout. So the primary storyline here is basically that the crew of the Minoc, that is Delia Blue, Jiraiya Sin, and of course Cade Skywalker, after having left uh, Bantha Rock's place back in the previous arc in Storms, basically have taken back to pirating, but they're doing it in kind of a weird way. Black Sun is already being tipped off, we find eventually by uh, Moff Gromia uh, on Tatooine, but is already being tipped off as to the roots of these Imperial supply vessels. So Black Sun is already raiding these supply vessels, and what's happening is basically that Cade is coming in with his crew and stopping the Black Sun members, acting like, you know, well, he's the Jedi coming to save the day for these Imperials, only, no, not really. They just take out Black Sun and take the shipment for themselves. So it's basically sort of the criminals robbing from the criminals who are robbing the Imperials in this case. And it's setting them up fairly well, but 
They stop on Tatooine, and it turns out they need a part for the ship. So you wind up in a situation where Delia goes undercover, basically posing as Astral Val, but posing as uh, someone going to the Imperial mission to try to basically scam them to get the part that they need. Uh, these people that basically are going to help anyone that they can and lie to them to get the help instead of just asking for help, which turns out they actually could have. Uh, we also find by the time things wrap up that the Imperial mission is now being retasked by Darth Weirlock uh, through Conrad Rose, the guy that runs the thing, to be much more about indoctrinating people into a Sith mindset rather than just doing good on behalf of the Empire, which is what they've been doing before. They've been kind of left alone by the Sith up until this point. So you have that aspect of it. While they're stuck on Tatooine, Cade winds up basically, he's in the crosshairs of his own half-sister because because of what's going on with all these raids on Black Sun and whatnot, uh, and the fact that Moff Gromia on Tatooine appears to be corrupt, Nina Calixta assigns, quote-unquote, Morrigan Cord to look into it. Again, Morrigan Cord is Nina Calixta uh, in her alter ego, the one that was Cade's mom before she sort of changed her alter ego, it seems like, to be an Imperial. And she decides that it's a good time for Gunnar Yeag, who is her daughter, just not with Cole Skywalker, making her Cade's half-sister, are both going to be the ones that are looking into this as a way to sort of use her daughter's uh, special forces training and kind of uh, manipulate the situation with her and all. And what winds up happening is that Cade runs afoul of her and we wind up seeing essentially her, that is Gunner, trying to take Cade into custody, not knowing they're related, but at the same time, Gromia, working with Black Sun, sending three bounty hunters to try to kill them. Uh, two Anzadi and one Blood Carver. And in the process, Cade winds up having to at least a little bit work with Gunner to save them. Uh, Jiraiya winds up working with Morrigan to come into the situation and try to help as well. Uh, before they can be saved, there's a sandstorm. And amidst that sandstorm, Cade has a vision in which he speaks with the spirit of Luke Skywalker. And in the process, kind of gets reminded that the galaxy's not going to leave him alone. He can say that he's neutral when it comes to light side, dark side, but the potential is there for great darkness. And he really sort of has to decide if it, if not what he wants to become, then at least decide what he doesn't want to let himself become and find a path that's going to avoid that. When all is said and done, our heroes are rescued. They get the parts they need for the ship. Cade finally gets to actually meet his mom in person, though he doesn't have a lot of kind words for her. Uh, they had been on a mission together before, but hadn't actually met face to face. And Gunner is able to take down Gromia, which is a good catch for her. But in the process of basically dying, uh, Gromia's last words are to tell Gunner that she knows that Nina and Morgan are the same and that Cade is her daughter, which, of course, makes him the half-brother of Gunner, which she's not really willing at first to accept. Uh, meanwhile, back uh, in the Sith Empire, you have Moff Morlish Veed, or, or I guess not Moff, but a Grand Admiral, uh, Morlish Veed being brought in and basically made regent. Uh, Weirlock recognizes that most people in the Sith Empire don't necessarily know much of him, even though he was always making decisions in the absence of Darth Crate, who is now supposedly dead, but supposedly in stasis as far as anybody's concerned. Turns out it'll probably be more true than, than not. That, in essence, because they don't know him, he probably shouldn't be the face of the one Sith or the Sith Empire now. There needs to be someone more well-known acting as the public face, and that's going to be Veed as regent. Something he's wanted, that great power. He just necessarily didn't want it to have to be with him as the mouthpiece for someone else. So things are progressing in multiple parts of the storyline here for Legacy as we get to issue number 40. Yeah, it's ramping up. I love the little interactions with the characters of the Minox crew. Uh, and, and it's mainly because I don't like it. <laughs> you know, like we've got Cade's relationship with Delilah kind of falling apart. Uh, there's a moment here where, you know, when the tri-valves broke. Uh, Jiraiya goes, hey, got that force healing mojo thing. Can't you force heal the Tri-Valve? If I could do that, then I wouldn't need her, would I? Says Kate, and he's pointing over at, at Delilah, and she's like, nice. Gonna remind you of that next time you get the urge for company. You're gonna be one lonesome flyboy. Chuba, you know I didn't mean it like that. Oh, yeah? Sound that way to me. 
and you know the the whole fact like and even later like Jariah and, and her are talking about hey you know it gets kind of lonely you know maybe you should come out here and she's like oh I'll take you up on that sometime like that was weird for me because like I have always felt like Delilah should be with Cade and Cade should wake up and figure that out but she's a Zeltron and Zeltrons are a different type of species a, a more sexual type species uh, they deal more with pheromones and stuff like that she's not as connected not as emotional I think the uh, the scientific name is that uh, that Cade is Homo sapien and she is Ho sapien. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's and that's apparently that's her people. Like, so, you know, I mean, it's it's promiscuous Mm -hmm. uh, promiscuous. going all the way back to the Marvel days. Yeah. So and that that, in fact, I was thinking about that, like there is a character species that hasn't jumped over to canon yet. As far as I'm aware of that, I think would be kind of a cool addition. Um, They were always a a species that intrigued me, not because they were a bunch of uh, (coughs) but just because they were just interesting. Okay, yeah, maybe it's something you cut in your throat there, son. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but but the whole aspect that they're playing with that with with Delilah, and I think too the other side of it is that by the end of this arc, they have two ships. So I was kind of like, you know, I, I was starting to feel like, well, maybe she's gonna break away. Maybe there's you know more to this. And I think that that was the thing about this issue. Looking back on it, was. When I got to this one at this point, I felt like there was so much potential. There were so many things that could happen off of this. And then the directions they went, well, good, just didn't quite add up to the potential I felt that this had set them up for. So I felt like it was like a big letdown overall. I mean, the Hondo Core thing especially was was one of those where I was just like, wait, we're not coming back to him? Because, you know, we leave him off. He's hunting down the Mandalore because he feels like the Mandalore is is working for the Sith or someone involved with the Sith. And he's going to bring that to light and get justice for it. Like, that to me, I thought that was going to be a huge story arc. You know, I've, I've always said that in Legends, there were always these three big factions. You had the Sith, you had the Jedi, and you had the Mandalorians. Going all the way back to the Old Republic, those were kind of the three factions. And then you get to the Clone Wars, and the Mandalorians kind of get kind of wiped out, so to speak. You know, I mean, now we've got canon kind of redoing that but in legends they were pretty much wiped out there were very few left at all uh and so you know the clones kind of were the mandalorian element if you followed karen travis's stuff so you get them to kind of come back in this regard and i got super excited about that that was something that i was really looking forward to and the way it ends i mean it does say end at the end of hondo's story but he's about to go hunting and that was something that really really had me excited for that character but you just you just cannot stay away from rogue then when we're talking about tatooine can you i can't i can't i can't get there well i was gonna get back to to jiraiya though because jiraiya he had this aspect of you know getting back to that creepy element he had a thing for kate's mom and kate's mom kind of has a thing for him and i'm like i don't know if it was just me or my frame of mind when i was reading this maybe there was a zeltron but i felt like there was a lot of sexual innuendo all throughout this arc and it was kind of creepy at times well, you've even got sort of the, uh, the it, what reminds me of the Three Musketeers moment from the Disney version of Three Musketeers. The, uh, uh, where it's, you know, you're married and off runs, you know, I guess it was Aramis. In this case, you got the uh, Jiraiya hooking up with the Twi'lek uh, who only drinks a certain type of drink and thinks that he's a Jedi because of a come on line that he used. And he's, he's racing away from her. He's like, oh, we were just meditating. We were just meditating. Um, yeah, it definitely, I've, this was definitely a series that had a lot more of that, but I think it goes with sort of the territory of these guys and sort of the world they live in, sort of the uh, the atmosphere they're around. I find it appropriate that most of the time, whenever you do any of the voices, I don't know if you've noticed, but usually when you do any voices of reading anything from these comics, you almost always go straight for like New Orleans, <laughs> almost every time. So it kind of gives you that sense. I, I think that... Tatooine was an important story that needed to be told because we needed to have Cade finally make a decision on what he wants to do going forward. And I think it's it is kind of an important thing to be able to say that you can necessarily not know what you want to do, but sometimes it's just as important to know what you don't want to do. Um, there's a point when uh, the, the spirit of Luke Skywalker says, you're stuck where you were seven years ago, Cade, alone, adrift among the stars, high above the open grave of Osis, waiting for death. Continue as you are, and this is your future, and he shows him as a Sith. Even when you think you've lost everything, there's always more to lose. Is this what you want? And in a very low voice, he says, no. He says, good. Then decide what you do. And that's an important piece of this, that Cade always feels like someone who doesn't quite know what he wants, except 
theoretically to be left alone. But even that doesn't seem like it's really what he wants a lot of the time. But mm-hmm. he's been willing to do some pretty dark things to try to get what he wants, almost reaching that Sith point. I mean, he goes Sith eyes on Luke's spirit in attacking him, which kind of makes you sit back and think, you know, maybe that is the thing with this guy. Maybe he doesn't know what he wants because he's so much being defined by how he gets where he's going that if he can just decide, okay, these are the paths I don't want to take, that'll at least help him start to figure out where he wants to go. And the fact that it's Luke that helps him do that is a big deal because we'd seen him talking to Luke's spirit before. And usually he was, you know, using death sticks to try to shut up Luke's influence on him and all this. And he just, it was very combative. It's still kind of combative here, but it's kind of like all that Kate has gone through and all that he's seen is kind of making him be a little more receptive to taking the advice when they're, when it's really laid bare before him. We also have that very important meeting or a couple of important meetings, right? Uh, Cade getting to meet his mother finally. We were waiting for that to finally happen. And one of the things, it's funny because it seems like it was something that for a lot of fans really didn't register on the radar, which is the whole half-brother, half-sister thing. Like we knew mm. that Gunner was there. We knew that Gunner was the daughter uh, of Yeg and Calixta. Okay, fine, whatever. And we knew that Calixta is Cord, and Cord and Cole had Cade. But for a lot of fans, I don't think the idea of, well, that makes these two half-siblings, and what's going to happen when they encounter each other, uh, it was never something that was really high up on the priority list of things they wanted to see. Um, but Star Wars has that family theme running throughout, especially in Legend, where so many different characters are now, you know, these families are multi-generational in the stories that are being told. To finally bring them together in any way was an important thing to finally see done. So it feels like this was a an essential piece of moving things forward. Whereas with Storms, it moved them forward somewhat, but it felt like a lot of things that were happening again were just like aftermath of Vector. And even the main thrust of that with uh, Aslan Ray and her sort of being turned into the cyborg and whatnot, you're left kind of wondering, will we see her again in future issues? Where is that going? Whereas this, it's all so much focused on these characters we've seen so many times that you're not left with a question of, are we going to see where this is going? I mean, at this point, the series only has, at the end of Tatooine, only has 10 issues and the war miniseries left. And I'm trying to remember if at this point we knew that was the case. If not, then it was certainly coming very, very soon that we would learn that. So we sort of had the feeling, even reading it originally, that, you know, we're getting more out of this. We're going to finally see Cade make some decisions and so on. Um, I, I thought it was a very strong arc, but mainly for those specific reasons. It had a lot of things going on, but a lot of the smaller things, it wasn't so much that these things are praiseworthy in and of themselves as they move the ball forward. Yeah, well, at the beginning you mentioned, you know, Cade getting stuck in circles and you know he's very conflicted i mean you think you know everything that went on with aslan Ra. i think that that's what's driving him away from delilah blue at this point i mean it, it feels like at times he's completely done with delilah and and i don't quite enjoy that thought because i always i always felt that they should be together uh but the tattooing angle having luke show up that was something i i agree with you i think that that was something needed to happen owen and baru lars are brought into the force vision and that was something at first that i kind of questioned i was like wait a minute they shouldn't be here they're not force ghosts but now i'm more thinking that they were projections that luke created to help open up Cade's eyes uh you know he shows Cade what luke lost uh to show him you know in a sense like hey you know you're not alone to loss you know yeah you you started in a really bad place but if you don't change your ways you're gonna keep losing you're gonna lose everything uh and there's you know right before the one part you were talking about while they're doing that sword fight Cade's like shut up no one is gonna tell me what to feel or how to live my life and then luke he's like you're striking with your anger your hate your pain your aggressive feelings like a sith i hate the sith even hating the sith fuels the dark side within you Cade. light side dark side they're just tools that's the lie the justification the others before you have chosen to believe you're fooling yourself if you think that the will of the force could be twisted like that and i think for me one of the things about this issue when this came out this was along the lines of like you had all that stuff going on in the new jedi order with vajer with the whole there is no dark side uh the concept of you know the the force is is neutral that we bring light we bring dark to it uh and that the jedi shouldn't be worried about a dark side and then there was the aspect of the fans going no 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 lucas was always 
clear. There's a light side. There's a dark side. The dark side will corrupt you. It's like a cancer. And so Legends found a way to kind of keep what Verger was saying and go true with Lucas in the aspect of those tainted locations and stuff where you could have places that, you know, somebody creates a darkness and then that darkness leaves a stain and then someone else shows up to that location and they're affected by that stain. Uh, a great example of that is in the uh, the young Obi-Wan books where him and Qui-Gon go looking for the Sith holocron and when they get to the planet, it starts having physical effects to them. So that was one of those aspects that I really got a kick out of, you know, and, and of course, you know, it doesn't wake Kate up to this moment. I mean, then he gets even more angry and it, he goes Sithites, which is what you were mentioning, Nate. Uh, but I think that these are the important parts, the moments that he needs to wake up. In, in a lot of ways, I feel like Cade Skywalker is a lot like Jason Solo in Legends, just constantly tiptoeing around an issue and trying to find the right way to come at the issue. And yet they never really quite commit to the direction that they're coming at it. So they're constantly reevaluating and, and coming back and coming at it at a different direction. And they're just never really quite getting anywhere. So as a reader, you kind of almost feel like you're doing that thing like Nate was saying where you're spinning in circles. But there's a progression here for these characters. You know, John Ostrander paying attention to the characters and doing the characters justice. And I think that that's why we like this series so much because, yeah, these issues may not be great in and of themselves all the time. But when you look back over the last seven arcs before this one, this is still building and playing off of that. And it's still affecting the characters and everything that's come before is driving these characters to the decisions they're making, whether or not those decisions are repeat decisions. But it's still moving forward, like you say. I think if there's one disappointment of this arc, for me, it's the bounty hunters or the assassins, whatever you want to call them. When Lun Rask is informed by Gromia about what's going on on Tatooine and the Black Sun dude, Rask, decides he's going to send his three hunters. He's going to send Ku Vrat, who is a blood carver, and Sint and Nakia Yoru, who are both Anzadi, and they're gonna go handle the situation. I don't know. For some reason, they left little to no impression on me, and this is now probably my third or fourth read-through of this arc, and they're just sort of there, and for some reason, just just did not capture my attention. They're supposed to be interesting. They have these, these conversations and this, you know, dwelling in the whole soup, 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 but I almost expected at one point that one of the Anzadis was gonna come after Cade, and he was gonna pull his lightsaber and go, no soup for you, or something. But they just really felt, I don't know, like they played their role in what needed to happen for the other characters. There were efforts to make them characters in and of themselves that had some depth to them, but I don't really feel like it worked. The Blood Carver doesn't really get to do a whole heck of a lot. Sint gets to do some fighting with the lightsaber that basically is just sort of, I don't know, he almost feels to me like what you would get if you crossed Blade with Steven Seagal. Like what if you took <laughs> the coolness and the look and the feel of Blade, but instead of letting it be Wesley Snipes playing him all slick, you put Steven Seagal in it and you made sure that the, the movie had like a three-word title or something. Whereas Nakia, uh, and apparently she must be very, very hard to kill because I've, I've seen those phones take a lot of, oh wait, sorry, that's Nokia. Uh, but Nakia really stands out because she's so pale. She's got the the, the, the red hair, which is funny because that now basically matches the, the hair that my wife has. My wife just dyed it like a scarlet color. But she's dressed like she should be a background character in a Blade movie. It just, something about those three. And maybe it's just because this era is so well defined with a certain visual style just felt like they were out of place. Like even sending just like if they were, you know, hired guns that were all human in like futuristic gear and we never saw their faces probably would have felt more in keeping with this era than these three did. And I don't know why. Surely Anzadi still exists. Surely Blood Carver still exists. And hey, we're getting to see a Blood Carver here actually created in art as opposed to just hearing about them in other books. But for whatever reason, those three just completely fell flat for me, and I don't really know why. Yeah, it is odd, because, you know, I felt like they brought them in because they were the references to the older eras. You know, the Blood Carver goes back to uh, uh, Rogue Planet. Uh, you've got the Anzadi goes back to uh, the uh, Tales of the Can Most Icely Cantina and the whole aspect of the soup. They were looking for Han Solo's soup, bringing that up. But, yeah, they did kind of feel like they weren't really attached so much. Maybe if they were clad in armor. You had the two Anzadi and the one Blood Carver, and it kind of makes sense in that regard that Cade kind of gets to play with the two and Zadi and and of course Morgan gets stuck with the blood carver and Jarrell comes to her rescue uh, but I, yeah I'm in the same boat like there was something not quite with them maybe it's just that they're missing some character disposition maybe they needed to add a little more I really felt like the and Zadi were the only two that really had anything but they're like such an old species that we don't see them that often that I kind of feel like that there should be some mystery to that. Uh, but then again, Star Wars, it, it's chock full of mystery. Sometimes you don't have to have an explanation. So maybe that's 
where my issue with that comes in. And then what's with them having lightsabers? Like, okay, they, they made a point with the Anzati guy. He mentions, you know, he took it off of a, uh, a dead Jedi that he killed. But the blood carver, like, is, is that a lightsaber at the end of his staff? Kind of like the blind Jedi from the, the uh, Clone Wars era? I mean, that, that kind of threw me off. Like, there was nothing there with that. It was just he had one, too. I was like, uh, okay. Oh, we're allowed to be doing modifications now, huh? Going back to uh, Phineas and Ferb. Well, there was just one other thing that was really odd. When uh, Cade's wearing the stun cuffs and the one lady's like, oh, go ahead, struggle. You know, it's not going to do anything. And he struggles. Like, there's another scene where he's like, I don't know if he's in pain or if he's in rapture. Like, I had no clue what the hell was going on in the next panel. Like, one panel he's being shocked. And the next one he's like, all eyes rolled back in his head. His head's tipped back. And he's like, ah, kind of look on his face. And then he kind of laughs at her. And I'm like, what the hell was that? Like, was he using his dark side powers? See, I thought it was just that he was he was kind of hurt, but he was just shrugging it off. But it could very well have been that this guy was like, oh, hurt me, hurt me more. And that that's a whole different thing. But we know that this is a very complicated character with a lot of darker impulses anyway. So maybe possibly. Yeah. I'm sure if we want to go there. And then uh, you would have loved the embrace of pain then, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You would have uh, had like a whole a whole Star Wars novel kind of in the vein of uh, what Fifty Shades of Grey called Embrace of Pain. Oh my god, I could just see it now. Cade keeps the embrace of pain in Jarell's room and so everybody thinks that their bromance has gone a little uh, the other direction. He's just using the closet. Oh man, I can't believe I went there. Uh, no, <laughs> so the one last thing I want to touch on on Tatooine before we leave oh, I don't even want to talk about touching things right now. When we get to the point where Cade's confronting Black Sun, the, the guy that sent the bounty hunters and stuff, and he's going to rig the deal and stuff with everything, and Morgan shoots the guy right in the throat, and Cade gets pissed. Like, I really thought that was a cool moment. He's like, Sis Bond, what'd you do? We had a deal. Rascal, never have You would have gotten off of this station alive. Not your problem. If you broke the deal, I'd have come back and finished him. I gave my word. That has to be able to stand for something. Is this some kind of game to you? No, I mean, your mother. And now he's gone full Sith eyes. Mother? Mother? And that means what? After all this time, you suddenly care? You abandoned me. You let dad die. And then at this point, like, and I love the art on this. Jarrell's like screaming, Kate, stop. You get in that way again. You want to kill your own mother? That's something you really want to do? And he drops her at this point, And he's like, he's hanging his head. Like, he realizes everything is falling apart. This isn't who I want to be. And he starts to walk away. Kate, I stop talking. Stay away from me. You find your way back. No doubt you can do that. You're a survivor. After all, above all else, you're nothing to me. And, you know, that's a great interaction to me because I feel like this is really the heart of his issue. Uh, the abandonment that he feels. He doesn't just feel abandoned by his mom. It's just his mom's the only one he can lash out at right now. He feels abandoned by the Jedi. He feels abandoned by his father for staying to protect the Jedi and not him specifically. That his father was helping him because he was a Jedi. So that was just, that was one of those things. Like every time he gets near his mom and the anger and stuff he has there, I really enjoy that. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you is the Anzati girl. She's like, The antidote. You said you'd give me the antidote if. And she goes, Here. And she drinks it. And then you see the ship fly off. And the Anzati girl and the bounty hunter both appear to be dead on the floor. Do you think that she did give her the antidote or do you think she gave her an accelerated poison? Uh, I'm thinking that in that case, I mean, she it was either I'd like to think that it wasn't even that she had poison. And here's the antidote. I'd like to think that she was just BSing about there being a poison in the first place and then gave her poison instead of an antidote. Either way, she didn't give an antidote to whatever was ailing and the character winds up dead. I, going back to the interaction with his mom, uh, I, I agree that the abandonment issues are right there on the forefront. I do find it interesting, though, that he makes the comment that he does about honor, you know, essentially that, you know, his word has to mean something, which can be taken a couple different ways. This could be sort of an honor among thieves thing. And it's just, well, to do business, your word has to mean something. Or it could be once again, we see that little bit of Cade kind of shining through where he sort of wants to be a good man, but he has no idea how to do it. You know, so in a sense... He kind of knows what the right thing to do would have been, but at the same time, if you flip that around, you put him in Morrigan's place with knowing kind of what her suspicions were and whatnot, I would see Cade doing the same thing that she did, which suggests that in a lot of ways, even though he he may have a moral compass, it's either broken 
or it's it doesn't necessarily work all the time. Hell, maybe maybe Cade's sense of and this may be borne out by this series, but maybe Cade's sense of right and wrong is like a clock that's broken. It's right twice a day, and the rest of the time it's completely screwed up. No, I, I'm with you on that broken. I think you know you mentioned the honor among thieves. I think that's it. He was raised by pirates. Rav, you know that's what pirates do the whole honor among thieves aspect the last issue we had uh when aslan raw gets hurt what's kate freaking out about promise me rock promise me you'll save her give me your word that's everything to him and i, I think about all the different you know gangster movies and the pirate movies and all those other type of you know uh, against the law kind of movies and yeah i mean when you're dealing in a world with no laws your word really is the law at this point because there is nothing else to hold you to it so if you can't be held to your word you have nothing it is complete chaos and really the only way to control pirates and, and other of these type of people is to have that code of honor so i, I think that that is something that we're seeing there and of course, you know, with Cade going back into the pirate ways, a lot of those type of practices are obviously rising to the forefront again. Arr, I'm looking for Cade Skywalker. Captain Cade Skywalker. That brings us to issue number 41, which is something completely different. The story Rogue's End. Picking up with what we know of Hondo Carr. We met Hondo Carr uh, as a member of Joker Squad back in Noob. We knew that he was a Mandalorian previously, but didn't really know much about him. He eventually winds up joining the Galactic Alliance Remnant and is working under Gar Stasi as a member of Rogue Squadron, and we saw him doing that back in Indomitable. Now, Rogue Squadron's back in the picture, which brings Hondo back in the picture and gives us a chance to know a little bit more about him, including his background. So we have a story that starts actually with a flashback to the first year of the Sith Imperial War, the Battle of Bodajef. We see a battle in which Chernin Ordo, who is the current Mandalore, winds up being killed. In the process of the battle, Hondo Kar winds up finding that Yaga Ox, uh, a Mandalorian, has apparently turned on the Mandalorians uh, on behalf of the Empire and has essentially betrayed them uh, and is selling them out in essence. But before Hondo can do anything about it or tell anyone one about it. The battle sort of turns against them, and he and Vevik, who is his father-in-law, or at least is, is going to become that, I'm assuming that at this point it is his father-in-law, he and Vevik are the last two Mandalorians in a particular area as the Imperials are closing in, and in order to essentially keep themselves from being killed so that they can get information back about what's been happening uh, with Yaga Ox, Hondo starts putting on Stormtrooper armor from a dead Stormtrooper on the ground, with the idea that Vevik should do the same. Vevik doesn't, or at least doesn't do it fast enough, winds up turning his blaster on Hondo to make it look like a Mandalorian threatening a Stormtrooper right as the Imperials come in, and is shot dead. But this winds up giving Hondo the ability to say that, well, he's just a Stormtrooper and all of his squad was taken out, he's all that's left, and it turns out he was saved by Joker Squad, who take him in and then fudge the paperwork later to make let it be a permanent posting. So in essence, he became a stormtrooper because of what happened at the Battle of Bodajef. Not necessarily choosing to be a stormtrooper, but sort of always being this Mandalorian undercover, so to speak. In the present day, we have a mission in which there's a bunch of Mon Cal's who need to get to safety. And Azim the Hut has a ship, or a set of ships, that are basically water tankers, and they're going to haul water from place to place, but at least one of those ships is going to have water that includes a whole bunch of Mon Calamari swimming around in it to get them to safety. And it's up to Ange Dahl and Hondo Carr, both of Rogue Squadron, uh, to take on a mission to go actually meet with Azim uh, down on the planet. And once they meet with Azim, after dealing with some of his henchmen outside and such, a, Azim is a very sort of refined-sounding, uh, almost erudite uh, or erudite hut. But uh, turns out that things take a twist when Hondo confronts a Mandalorian who sort of pops out of nowhere, spotting him, and is ready to kill him. Turns out it's Tess Vevik, daughter of the Vevik that died in the Battle of Bodajef, and now Hondo's ex-wife, who basically wants to kill him, believing he is a traitor to the Mandalorians, because she's bought hook, line, and sinker all this BS that Yaga Ox has been spouting, and oh yeah, Yaga the traitor, he's now the new Mandalore, the new leader of the Mandalorians. We get some good combat moments until finally, uh, we see that the Rebel mission, or the uh, Galactic Alliance mission, has turned out well. Hondo is able to briefly subdue 
his ex-wife, but when Anne shows up, instead of going with her, he's like, no, we've we've got other stuff to take care of. You go on back, say goodbye to the other rogues, say goodbye to Garstazi, say thank you, but I've got something else I've got to do. And Hondo and Tess decide that they're going to go back to the Mandalorians, and they're going to find and bring down Yaga Ox. They're going to reveal the truth and make sure that this man who has falsely taken over the Mandalorian culture gets taken down. And to prepare for that, he takes out his Beskar Gam, his Mandalorian armor uh, that had been preserved, and changes its paint scheme to an awesome new black and gold color, which is either um, black for justice and gold for revenge, as they say in the book, or he's a really big Purdue fan like my dad. And the decision is made that he is going to go on the hunt to try to essentially take down the reigning Mandalore. Unfortunately, that's where the issue ends, and that's where the entire legacy era Mandalorian arc ends, because this series ends nine issues later, and as I mentioned earlier, it's not brought up again really in War or in Legacy Volume 2. So we have the launching off point of a new direction for Hondo, but don't actually get to see where it goes. Yeah, that to this day will still be one of those stories that <laughs> I will itch for. I was so excited about that. Um, you know, and, and we had mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about, you know, I didn't like the fact that they tied this in. Like, I honestly think that this story should be in its own arc. Um, so part of my thought was, you know, hey, maybe down the road we cover this as an arc and see how it comes across. So, you know, we'll toss it out to you guys. If enough of you guys think so, maybe we'll do it. But right now we're just going to cover it like this. And I feel like the way that they do it like this, like, I just, I think it only works for people like me and Nathan, you know, guys that got this huge comic collection. We've kept on to all of them all and we're pulling them out to reread them when we want to kind of thing. Because otherwise you have to remember all this stuff that you probably won't. Yeah, the comic here, it does a good job of going back to the beginning, kind of giving you a clue what's going on. But I really feel like this character, you know, I, I did go back. I re- I reread them all straight, and I really got a lot out of it. I really wanted to know more about this guy. Uh, I liked the direction that we were going with it, the, the fact that he was forced into the Imper- Imperial Service, the fact that he eventually becomes a rogue. And then when we see him leaving the rogues, like, I, I thought that that was a great interaction between him and Rogue Leader there at the end. Uh, she goes, uh, you still here, Ange? Take her away. You need to get on that ship and get out of here before the hut decides who's liable for the damages here today. The tanker's fine. I came for you. You're a rogue. Not anymore. Have another road to walk, a different war to fight. My compliments and my thanks to the admiral for taking me in. I owe him. And then he turns to her one more time. Say goodbye to the other rogues for me and take care of yourself. And... You know, just as a single issue, like, I felt like that didn't work. Like, he sits there, he talks to his wife, and he doesn't quite exactly apologize, but all of a sudden, he's just going to go off with her. Like, she's trying to kill him, but now it's all good. Like, uh, I've talked to her, and and we're okay now. And I just felt like as a single issue, that doesn't really come across very well. It doesn't play well to the reader. I don't know, Nate, did you get a different reaction there? Did you feel like that was really forced, his sudden, I'm going to leave? Well, I felt that it was, like, her being willing to believe him was rushed a little bit, but if you figure these two were close enough to be married, and maybe she has her own suspicions about what's going on anyway, so it's almost like, well, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton said that you were the bad guy, and they don't ever lie. Wait, what's your side of the story? You know, that kind of thing. I think that it had to be done fairly quickly, because it was only going to be able to be done in a single issue. Um, So in that sense, they had to carry it off as best as they could without going too much further. In that sense, their interactions are pretty interesting. Uh, I like, I love the fact that as they're fighting, she winds up, basically he tells Ange not to kill her, and she's like, you know, I've tracked that man for almost ten years, and if I've lost him now because of you metal diecuts, you know, talking about the uh, uh, the droids that, that interfere, it's like, Tess, we need to talk, you need to die, and he jumps to the side, he's like, just like our marriage, you know? I, I think that there was certainly an opening for more banter and more amusement like that, but they didn't really have the pages to fill with that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, it kind of worked. It did seem like it was a fairly fast turnaround, but I mean, even when he, when he winds up subduing her he's like you know why do you always have to make this so hard and you've got the bits and pieces he says uh you know your story is so much bantha drop is yaga ox is mandalore now heard that i love the way that he talks hondo talks he talks in these like clipped little bits where you know he's not going to use any more words than absolutely necessary the total opposite of me right heard that (laughs) keeping everyone on the on the planet clear of conflicts rebuilding Not you, of course. I followed every rumor about you. Heard you became part of the rogue squadron and that the rogues might come here. Ox tells a different story, you know. Paints a different picture of you. So why should I believe you? He says, you know me, Tess. You'd know if I was lying. If you don't believe what I told you, pull the trigger. 
And it's kind of that moment where she has to sort of think about who he is, not as what he's been painted, but as the man that she knew that sort of causes her to be willing to do this. And, you know, she gives him back the the armor that she's apparently been carrying around after she recovered it from Bota Jeff uh, when they recovered her father's body. So she's got a sentimental attachment still to him, despite the fact that she had thought he was a traitor. What gets me about this story is less that the ending felt a tiny bit rushed, as there's so much going on trying to give us the backstory of what happened, plus the current Rogue Squadron mission, plus the clash going on with Tess and getting him set off in the new direction, that it felt like there needed to be more issues involved, of course. But it's one of the, despite having a lot of of dialogue, and it's a very fast read for an issue of Legacy. I almost felt like when I got done reading it that I'd only really read about half or a little more than half of a comic. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you want more... And it's relatively fast-paced and very dense with a lot of stuff happening at one time. Ironically, despite the fact that it really doesn't give us any payoff, per se, uh, it's all really in a lot of ways about a, setting up a new direction, kind of like Storms was for Cade and Company. It still stands out as one of my favorite issues, single-issue-wise, of Legacy, because I love the concept of where this could have gone and how they were giving us a change to the Mandalorians. Those who are, are relatively new to Star Wars reading, particularly with the new canon, may not really get this same feeling from it. But understand, ever since Karen Travis came in and was hired to write for the Republic Commando books, and she eventually wound up writing for Legacy of the Force, and so on and so on, she did for the Mandalorians in Star Wars in a lot of ways like people like Mark Ockrand did for the Klingons in Star Trek, which is giving them a language, giving them defined cultural features, defined cultural taboos, customs. They are probably the single most fleshed out individual culture in all of the Legends continuity, almost single-handedly from Karen Travis, whether you liked her stuff or didn't. But that, most of it, seems to have been essentially erased because it hasn't really been referenced within the new canon, and the new canon doesn't have any culture like that yet because they haven't really been able to focus on those little niche areas of the continuity when they're focusing on the stories of the big three because they have all these different open eras in which to now tell those stories and sort of or retell certain stories and such in those time periods. So to have this be sort of an opening of a new era of this culture that became uh, either a fan favorite or fan hated, depending on who you were, but inarguably one of, if not the deepest cultures we got in Star Wars, to have that get this whole new twist on it was awesome. But mm-hmm. it didn't it, it didn't have the payoff. It was I, I'm not even sure I would call this a cliffhanger. It's almost like the story didn't even get started. This is like a prologue without a book that follows. Yeah, it, it's almost a more satisfactory conclusion than Invasion, though. <laughs> well, almost anything is going to be a more satisfactory conclusion of Invasion setting up this giant cliffhanger thing and then going like da and it's over. Yeah. I, I like, though, that uh, Honda's wife, when she kept the armor, it was specifically to bury him in it. <laughs> it was like, so, so it wasn't so much that she was connected to him. It was more the honor of the Mandalorian people. And, and it even goes back to what her well, dad was. But, but she wanted to bury him with honor theoretically, right? If you're buried with your armor, that's an honorable thing for the person who's died, isn't it? Possibly. But like her dad says, toss my armor, my best again? Never. Better to die standing on my feet, killing my enemies. <laughs> you know, like, you know, the, it's all about the armor with these mandos, which was definitely something that Karen brought to the story that, you know, like he said, it isn't really canon anymore. Uh, one of the things, you know, looking at this from a four-story arc, you know, of the Hondo stuff, I did like how this one, you know, if you've been following him from rookies or noobs all the way up to this, you know, you kind of know where he's at, but this one gives you the, okay, this is how he went from the Mandalorian to that. And, and I like that. It felt like a kind of throwback story, almost like the Deadpool back in black, where we find out he actually had the Venom symbiote, you know, one of those little retcon stories. So I like that angle of it. I thought that was kind of a cool throwback and then jump back to the present. Uh, and in that regard, it works well as it being a single one in the back of Tatooine like that. Um, and I also like the fact that we see uh, the name of the Mandalorian before Och took over and it was an Ordo. Uh, so there was another order out there that was the Mandalorians could even be one of uh, Cal's group. Now, you keep saying in the back, I'm assuming that you're looking at this as the trade paperback. I'm looking at it as a single issues. You don't have these as singles, do you? Uh, actually, I do have it as singles. Oh, I just I think back. 
Assuming so, it was in the back. So, flipping issue number 41 to about the seventh page. First sheet is two pages, next is two, next is two. Check out the advertisement on page seven of that comic. I was so stoked to see that ad. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't have the issue in front of you, it's an advertisement for the Star Wars comic packs from Hasbro, but... And this, I had no idea they were going to do this, just like I had no idea they were going to make a comic pack out of it until they actually let me know, hey, we did. Uh, Like, I found out from Insider, I think it was. But uh, (laughs) they took a chunk of three panels out of my Star Wars Equals and Opposites uh, Star Wars Tales story from 2004, and since they were making a comic pack of it, used those panels as their advertisement here for the comic packs. It has the one where uh, Kyle has dropped his saber and it's falling into the cell with Jan. He says, you know, Jan, the saber... Use the saber on the lock. It'll burn through. And she's like, already on it. And then you get the giant Yuzhan Vong coming after, like, Jedi and all. Uh, and it shows the two figures down at the bottom. And then it's got uh, also the advertisement there for the Sigil Dare Darth Crate Legacy uh, comic pack and the yeah. Lumaya Luke Skywalker Duel with the Dark Lady comic pack. So I was stoked to run into that because I had forgotten, actually, until rereading this comic, I had forgotten that they had used it for an advertisement. Oh, that's So cool. I ran into it and I was like, dude, sweet, I totally forgot that. Um, so <laughs> so if, they, if they needed to give me an another personal connection to feel vested in these legacy comics they just did it again by advertising nice you know and that darth creighton uh sigel there those are the only of the legacy ones i don't have oh just slipped through my fingers man oh i haven't even tried to get the legacy ones because i got a feeling if i started to really hunt them down i wouldn't stop but i don't know someday maybe someday i you know as i look up here i'm sitting at my computer desk in our bedroom as i look up i realize the walls above and to the side of this computer desk don't have anything on them yet <laughs> that that star wars office sure doesn't have room for anything else but this room's got some space somewhere out there my wife is is having the hairs on the back of her neck stand up like, oh, oh no. Uh, All right, so let's talk covers here. Um, We've got issues 37 to 41, and I guess I can do the run-through. I always leave it to you to do the first run-through, but I'm transitioning, so I guess I can can run through. Number 37, first part of Tatooine says, Return to Tatooine. Has a couple of red suns behind Cade, looking relatively realistic, very gruff. A lot like what he looks like on the uh, Jan Dersima Celebration 6 art print and such. It is a Dersima cover there. Then we have a cover uh, by, let's see, uh, Chris Warner and Brad Anderson on number 38, which has a Cade essentially standing there and firing away with his half-sister Gunner behind him. While I I like 37 and it sort of feels realistic, almost old western, 38 kind of makes me laugh because as cool as it looks with him like, ah, and shooting and she's, you know, all calm and collected shooting behind them, the poses of their bodies make little to no sense, especially Gunner. It's like, so is Gunner like half-sitting and getting shot in the ass? And she's like kind of shooting, but she's shooting with the, the gun somewhat above of her eyeline when she's shooting and what? It just, when you start looking at specific details, I think the cover of 38 falls apart. Uh, speaking of specific details, the cover of 39 has uh, the spirit of Luke versus Cade, and Cade has a really sort of hateful look on his face uh, with the Sith eyes and everything. That's a one by Jan Dersima and Brad Anderson. I gotta admit, and I, I will never see it it's the same way again, as soon as I started paying attention to Luke's face, I thought, you know what, this is like Luke Skywalker if Padme had, instead of having a child with essentially Anakin slash Hayden Christensen, uh, if she had perhaps uh, had a child with Bill Cosby, because he just looks absolutely wrong, but you can see with, with like the look of his face, imagine the lips, the way he's pursed them there, saying, the pudding and the pops and the... And yes, it looks... I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is Luke Skywalker by way of Bill Cosby. Um, But before any of the drugging and raping or anything like that, or maybe after, you never know. Uh, It was, there was no father. Okay, it was Bill Cosby. That's a whole nother thing. Then uh, number 40 has uh, Cade sort of shown from uh, behind and to the left as he is standing uh, in front of, I guess that's supposed to be Morrigan Cord. That one almost goes to a too realistic point because it's almost difficult to recognize that that is Morrigan, but it works. And then my hands-down favorite, and probably Mark's too, we'll see, is 41, which is the one for uh, Mandalore. I guess I should say what these things say. Uh, uh, 38 says ambushed. 39 says a clash with destiny. 40 says mother and son reunion or death match. 
And then a 41 says Mandalorian mayhem and shows a Dasucha with the tankers full of water rising up, uh, looking relatively realistic, really nicely done there. Uh, it's another one that's by another different artist. This is Sean Cook. And it's got sort of the uh, slightly transparent helmet of Hondo Carr once it's repainted there, sort of overseeing it with the sun coming up behind him, which I thought was very artistic. I'd love to have a poster of that cover. So all in all, pretty decent covers, barring the weird contortion in the second issue and Luke by way of Bill Cosby face on the third. <laughs> Bill Cosby face. God, uh, I, I was I was muted. I was laughing a little hard at that. That was just too much. I'm sorry. Hold on. <laughs> Bill Cosby face. That's so true. Can you just, just uh, imagine they're fighting, and finally Luke says, "There's always room for light side." <laughs> I just, I keep seeing Bill's face where he rolls his eyes up too. Now that you said it, I'm never gonna not see that. Damn it! Why does Cade not listen? Brain damage. Oh, and geez. so on. So if you've never seen Bill Cosby himself, which is one of the the great comedic performances perhaps of all time you really ought to check out that special if you get the opportunity bill cosby himself is what it's called heck if i know where you can find it now heck it may even be on youtube but but yeah i just i don't know there's so many jokes can be made about that cover i'm just i guess i guess luke is like reaching back and having to block a strike from Cade and block some force lightning uh, kind of over his shoulder, but the bend to Cade's or to uh, Luke's body just doesn't look natural. Just it's a weird cover. Yeah, really, because all Cade has to do is extend his left hand a little more and burn Luke's back in half. <laughs> Well, yeah, just so, it, it, with the way that he's bending, you would think that instead of saying, I will defeat you, it's like he's saying, hey, you know, and I don't know, just an odd angle. Well, you know that, that picture where they took of Hayden Christensen and uh, Ewan McGregor where they were doing the lightsaber <laughs> fight and they put Anakin on a pole and Obi-Wan throwing dollar bills? Yeah. <laughs> I can see something like that out of this. So the trade paperback itself was actually uh, cover 37, uh, which you pointed out. And, and in fact, it was when I was looking at 37 that I was like, you know, I don't know how I feel about this one and i looked and i'm like oh my god it's jan i love jan's stuff and yet i wasn't too thrilled with this cover and i had no idea why i just i think his face is a little more pinched than i'm used to and i think now that i've watched a lot more game of thrones he's got a, a young eddard stark kind of look to him i don't know it just doesn't quite oh, see, work see i was thinking of blonde john snow although <laughs> if you really want to never look at this cover the same again think the older like you know publicity photo slash almost mugshot shot looking image of jake lloyd if jake lloyd grew his hair out oh my god no you're right <laughs> holy cow you're okay so, okay okay props to jan that's probably what she was doing there because uh, well like you know with with luke like i felt like like the eyebrows with luke are so thick because they're trying to make that Cade reference like hey these guys are related uh the one thing i do like about 37 though is it has a wild west feel to it for me like Cade's trench coat works in that way the coat's back over his lightsaber's hands kind of leaning down down for it with his left hand he's got the pistol on his right hip but he's got the double barrel shotgun in his hand and it's already held up and it's got the two suns going down not quite high noon or maybe that is high noon on tatooine but i like that aspect of that cover even though i don't really care for the art and what's odd is i really like 38 <laughs> as much as nate hated the ambushed cover that one i really got a kick out of it can, uh, can I, you I, figure out how she must be sitting there though i'm thinking they're both dropped down so clearly like the explosion behind them they must be ducking from and the shot must be coming right near, but I, I'm in agreement with you that her ass got a little singed on that shot. Like, that's way too close. Uh, but I like the color. It's like the, the way Cade's drawn in this one, I really like the look of him. Uh, I like the extra black around everything, the darkness of it. And I really, I think that's a Brad Anderson uh Edition because when he does 39 with Jan, it, it Cade has that look again that the classic Cade look that I really enjoyed that I didn't quite enjoy so much with 37. I do like the action of 39 in the aspect of everything but Luke. Uh, I'm with you. I think Luke just doesn't quite fit. Cade, he's unleashing that Sith lightning or the, the Sith healing, I guess, for him. Uh, and it doesn't make sense. Why would you be trying to force lightning a Sith or a Jedi ghost or heal a Jedi ghost? Oh, well, maybe maybe that explains Luke's face. Maybe he's getting that Palpatine treatment where it's turning into like rubbery goo. Ooh, that could be, which is something that reminds me. I mean, there was that moment in the interaction between them where Luke drops the lightsaber and is like, I'm not going to fight you. And Cade's like, hey, you made a mistake, fool. Like, oh, but I like the background on this one and I like Cade. I just don't really care for Luke. He just doesn't feel good. Uh, 40. 
I'm on the fence. Like generally, I don't care for what I consider a wispy style. I feel like this is more wispy. But I really, I think Morgan Cord drawn in this one actually, her face looks sexier than how she's drawn in the comic. Whereas clearly, her chest in the comic is a little more sexier than how they did it with here. But I don't have a problem with that. It's just an observation. Uh, but I kind of like the look of Cade himself. Like I, it's a macho Cade. Like I don't know, just something about it. But yeah, at the end of the day, forty-one. I'm with you, Nate. Uh, it's got the classic feel of a movie poster. Uh, uh, you know, like you could ha- see something like this for Rogue One, I think, and it would work. I mean, granted, there's no Mandalorians in Rogue One, but I think if you could have put, you know, a Mandalorian in the group, have that helmet make sense, and then have the Death Star with some ships flying away, I think, bam, you got a cool Rogue One poster. Uh, I think that it really works. I do understand that you couldn't use this one for the cover of Tatooine because it would have made no sense whatsoever, uh, but it's definitely the strong point of them. <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Hey, and remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on the Google Play Store at the Star Wars Podcast app, as well as iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention you are sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Hey, our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe or the expanded universe or the Legends universe or even the Game of Thrones universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. One, that they would market Pudding Pops on Tatooine. And two, that maybe we'll be able to get that whole Audible, exchange it within 12 months, if you hate it thing. Um, Can we have that applied to a presidential election? Please? (laughs) Please? I second that. Please, 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 please. I don't even care who wins. We lose. What are the odds that there'll be enough people out there going, we want to know more about Hondo Car. You guys should cover all four episodes. Issues. Uh, do it. Well, no, man. no, man. You know how we need to take care of the whole story of Hondo Car, man? You need to go on change.org and demand that stuff, man. Demand it. Make the government force Disney to give the comics to Marvel uh, or from Marvel to Dark Horse and make Dark Horse do another issue because that's what that website's for, isn't it? Dude, the odds are so bad about that that they change the about page. It's no longer just to petition the government. It's just about changing things. I'm like, wow, we have screwed this up so bad. They've changed their marketing strategy. <laughs> so rather, whoever it was that came up with that for the government just threw up their hands, dropped their clipboards and stuff all over the ground and just said, F it, and just walked. There's nobody manning the site anymore. They're just like, hell with it. They're just like, going to do whatever they want with it. They want us to build a f- Death Star in a damn AT-AT. And then we got the energy department who's out there like, we aren't really doing experimentation like you saw in Stranger Things and being real defensive about it for something about a TV show. <laughs> I want to know what the energy department's really been working on, given that they've had somebody say, well, we actually kind of probably have sponsored some extra dimensional type of research because that is energy, but nothing officially. And everybody's sitting back like, what? <laughs> 